it's our, it's our second anniversary um, as a church. We, we had our first public meeting um, in, uh, on Father's Day in 2016, and it was in a hotel, and, and most of you weren't there, and I just think that's kind of neat in a way. Some of you were, and man, I'm thankful for the ones who were at that meeting. Um, just We've been so close. We've been through so, so much as a church already, and, and yet here we are, and so many of you are new, and, it, and so if you're thinking... Wow, I'm pretty new at this church. I don't know if I'm going to fit in. We're all pretty new, uh, myself included. So that's, hopefully that's an encouragement to you. Evergreen Chapel began with incredible optimism. Incredible optimism about spiritual renewal in Smith's Falls. Okay, that, that's what we set out for. That's what we thought. This is what God is going to do. And, and I want to assure you that that has not changed one bit. If you've listened to my preaching at all, um, we sense that God... God is continually exposing people to his word and that his word is transforming. And if you've been here any length of time, I trust that God's word has transformed you. Not because I'm a wise leader, but because I um, am obsessed with just showing you what the word says, because I have nothing to offer you except my study on um, the riches of this book. Um, Now, this church did go through a bit of a transition last year. We lost a pastor. Um, He's still alive, but he moved. Um, so, you know, it could have been worse, but, you know, for me that, and for my family, that was fairly traumatic. And, um, some of you know, the role that you played in keeping Shan and I upright throughout that period. And, and so I don't need to name names, but some of you just uh, laid on us your strength and your encouragement. And so it's no accident that this church is here. And as uh, it being our anniversary Sunday, we've, and this is all God's timing. We're, we're going to have a town hall meeting afterwards. And I'm going to show you some stuff about what it's going to mean to belong to Evergreen from here on in and, and as we grow, um, because we are continually planting. We are not planted past tense. We are in that process. We're in that work right now. And um, this, despite our glossy um, professionalism, <laughs> that was a joke. So an anniversary is a good time to assess reality, isn't it? It's a good time to, to engage in, in, in a little bit of introspection. I'm not an introspective guy, but you got to look at reality. You got to assess reality. You got to figure out where you're at. And you got to figure out what your next steps are. And so this message is a message about that next step. It's a message for you. Okay. It's not a message for some other um, awesome super Christian somewhere else. It's for you. Okay. If you belong to this church and if you want to belong to what God's doing uh, in the world. And so we want to thank God for his faithfulness. And uh, we also want to push ahead with new confidence. We don't want to look back and say, wasn't, wasn't yesterday so great? Um, because uh, we believe that better days are ahead for our church. And we're excited about um, how through our obedience to the word, God is going to uh, pour out his work through us. And we're excited to see that. And so this, ma- this morning's message, it speaks to the individuals in a church. How do we go about our daily business? And, and that's an important question for us to ask in light of what is the church and what is the mission of the church. So we're in Colossians, and, and boy, this is tough to, to, to grab a passage out of its context and, and just preach it without the weight of the whole letter behind it. And so I don't do this lightly, uh, but we are in Colossians chapter 4. We're right near the end, verses 2 through 6. I'm going to read that. Okay, and then I'm going to give us a little bit of background on the book, and then we'll find out what these verses say to us. So Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, 
with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech also always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we're zooming in on this passage near the end of the book here before Paul gives his final personal greetings and instructions. And and we need to know what the letter has said up to this point. And so I'm not going to preach the whole book, but I want you to see five major topics and five major assumptions that Paul has made up until this point in the letter to the Colossians. Number one is that the church, the gathering of the people together to whom he's speaking, has believed in the word of God. Two weeks ago, I spoke on the high priestly prayer, those final passages, and we saw that the word of God is what creates the church. It's not people seeking to create a social club. God actually births the church by the word that he speaks to people. Okay, and, and, and we see that in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, because of the hope that is laid up for you, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed it is in the whole world bearing fruit and increasing. And so Paul notes that the church has believed in the word. If you don't have a church that believes in the word, you don't have a church. And the rest of instruction is a waste of time. And so that's assumption number one. Number two is that Jesus Christ is the central figure in that church. In chapter 1, verse 15, we have this amazing passage. It's kind of a praise passage of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You may be familiar with that passage, but I'd encourage you to read it because it is an exaltation of Christ. And so Paul puts Jesus Christ at the center and his attributes at the center of the belief of this church. Number three, that there is an ongoing dependence on him for practical living and eternal hope. Now, a lot of churches say Jesus Christ is the center. He's the most important. And yet when they go to live their lives, they don't depend on him. They depend on uh, intelligence or psychoanalysis or self-help, right? There's a lot of churches that do not rely on Christ to actually live out the Christian life. And so in in, uh, chapter 2, 6 to 15, it's titled Alive in Christ in in your ESV. It says, therefore, as you received, so just as you believed, so also walk in him. You don't just believe Jesus and then you do your best and you go, it's like training wheels are off and you go ride down the street. So we also walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. And so he says, don't be pulled away from that. Don't be deceived by empty teaching. You need to depend on Christ daily. That's assumption number three. Assumption number four is avoid bad religion and self-assurance. This is in same chapter two, 16 to 23. Let no one disqualify you. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in the questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And he's talking about people who knew about Judaism and they said to new Christians, hey, you're not a real Christian unless you do all these uh, rituals, unless you keep these feasts, unless you observe these traditions, you're not a real Christian. Paul says, no, 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 no. Because he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations as in do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? 
religious observance. Paul says, referring to all the things uh, that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. That's the assumption there. These are human precepts and teachings. Uh, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. And they, ha- they promote asceticism and severity to the body. So it's a bodily discipline. But he says they are of no value in stopping in the indulgence of the flesh. So this is kind of the idea where you know, monks would move off to a monastery and say, Hey, if, if we can't be in, in contact with anything that would bring temptation on us, we can be holy. Paul says that's not the case. That's self-made religion. Because you, you can beat your body until you enjoy nothing about life and, and you can still sin. And this is why, in, going back to October, Martin Luther said, I, my conscience is dying because I have done everything I could to draw near to God. I have removed every external sin from my life and yet I feel guilty. Why is that? Because I need a new heart. Okay, and so this is avoid self-religion, avoid bad religion and self-made religion. What's the opposite of that? Chapter 3, 1 to 17. This is the fifth assumption. Uh, Be transformed inwardly. Be transformed on the inside. That's true religion. That's true submission to Christ. So it's a death to sin and it's a growth of inward maturity. He says, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, not the things that are below. And, And when Christ appears, you will be like him. You'll appear with him in glory. So put to death what is earthly in you. So it doesn't mean don't avoid sin. You need to put sin to death, but you need to put away anger and wrath and malice. And then in verse 10 in chapter three, he says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. This is why my friends, we spend so much time in the Bible because it renews your mind. It helps you put on the new self. So this is the fifth assumption that Paul makes. It's, it's kind of church 101. And then it brings Paul to exhort in in verse 18 uh, that you need to have an outward change. There should be newness in your relationships. Husbands and wives, your relationship should look different. There's a great sort of parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 about husbands loving your wives and wives submitting to your husbands. And then we have slaves submitting to your bond servants. Obey your masters. Don't be rebellious. Just because you're free in Christ doesn't mean you you get to rebel against your earthly boss. And so Paul says, hey... If you're really mature, then your relationship should look differently. Have you ever noticed maybe in the Bible that one of the greatest signs of maturity is that your relationships are good and they're right and they're in order? Wow, isn't that convicting? Because we can sit there all day long and consume the Bible and be filled with knowledge. But if our relationships are not transformed, we have not been transformed. Okay, so relationships look differently under um, the new the newness of life that Christ gives us. And so he assumes all of these things and he assumes that the church is on the same page when he comes to this exhortation. So what should we do to fulfill our calling as the church on an individual basis? So he's given the church these directives. And then we come to these passages where he refers to you sort of on a more individualistic and a private level. We're going to explore more about how the church collectively can fulfill the Great Commission and can fulfill its role in God's world. Um, But right now, and I don't want to frame, we were praying this morning at 930, and we we recognize that although God God is expanding his kingdom, okay, he is growing influence in the world, he has not forgotten about you and me in that process. He's not an empire builder, 
He's not building empire. He's building kingdoms. And the church is a, is a temple of living stones. Every individual who comes to Christ becomes a living stone. Every single person, your issues, your, uh, your fears, your own sin and forgiveness, your own struggles, all of that matters to our Lord because he's not like Alexander the Great who does not have time to pay attention to 300,000 soldiers. We serve a God who is a, a king and, and an imminent king who has indwelled his people. He knows you all intimately. He is with you. Even as he builds his kingdom, he is with you and he shepherds you. And so we don't want to forget that. And, and, and so we ask, hmm, how can we as an individual live according to these truths and be faithful to them and carry them out in our private lives? And again, as I said at the beginning, this is about the daily business and the focus of our people. How do we go about our daily lives? What characterizes us as we move from place to place? You know, most of us don't live in a monastery. That's not what we're called to. And so we need to deal with this question. How do we live our lives and what is the way forward for a Christian? And Paul gives us two amazing exhortations. And I've titled this message, The Effective Church. This is not a suggestion for the church that wants to go the extra mile and be super spiritual. Like there's a good status quo church over here. Uh, but if you want to be that next level church, do this. That's not what's at in, in mind here. This is for every church. This is for every Christian. If you belong to the Christian church, this is for you. It's for every person who can attest to and believe in the preceding five truths and wants to live it out. Because a lot of those things can be a little bit maybe vague. How do I live out Jesus being the, the, in preeminence in my life? How do I live that out practically? How do I live out avoiding bad religion or self-made religion? How do I live that out practically? And Paul gives us two fantastic exhortations. And so as we look as a church, maybe a little bit back at our last two years, but more forward, and we're going to touch a little bit more on this in our, in our uh, town hall meeting, what is the way forward for us? Because what I want to ask and what I want to emphasize is that if Evergreen Chapel, and, and I don't care about the name, I don't care about where we meet, but if our influence as a body of believers in Smith Falls and in our neighborhoods, is going to outlast you and I because that's what's in mind here. That's what is at stake. I mean, sure, we can do something great for maybe as long as you and I are here. But what happens when, you know, God leads me somewhere else? Or Not that I'm planning that at all. Don't hear me wrong. Don't email me about that. I'm here. But what happens when things change drastically? What happens when you have to move away? What happens when we are all gone and somebody else is standing here preaching? Is it still a faithful church? We want our influence and we want faithfulness to God to outlast us in this work of God. Otherwise, it's just, hey, we got together for a while. We did things the way we wanted to and then it, it was gone. Like a puff of smoke, like a vapor off a cup of coffee. I don't believe that's the witness of, the, of a true gospel church. A true gospel church outlasts generations. It outlasts fads. It outlasts personalities. It outlasts individual spiritual gifts because Christ is with his church. But you know what? It does not happen by accident. And so we want to create a culture that we can pass on. We want to create a dependence on God that we can pass on to those who come in our midst and those who will carry forward um, the local church into the next generation. That's my heart. Now, I pray that's a long way away from me. I, I don't have retirement anywhere on my radar. So what is the effective church? Let's, let's find out what our text says. The effective church prays. 
the effective church praise. And, and so many of you have joined us at 9.30 every single Sunday morning to ask God to move and to ask God to change hearts and to have his way and to be exalted. And I want to encourage more of you to do that because it is a time to engage with your brothers and sisters in the work of God. And it's a time to come and quiet your heart and prepare yourself for worship. It's a rich time. So I want to invite you to that. But the effective church praise. Continue steadfastly in prayer. This is, hey, what should I do now? Thanks for the lesson. Thanks for the doctrine, Paul. What's next for me? Well, continue steadfastly in prayer. If you want to know how does the Christian life transform you outside of a Sunday morning, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so he gives three descriptions, adverbs for prayer. Number one is steadfastly. Number two is with, with watchfulness, Number three is thankfulness. This is the attitude of your prayer. This is as you come to pray, what is your attitude? What is your position? What is your posture? How do you pray? What are the adverbs that go along with the verb pray? Because we've all heard prayers that we know don't sound watchful, steadfast, and thankful, right? Dry, begrudging, bitter, prayers that, prayers that do not embody the life that Christ has given us. This is the private life reality. We really see in these two exhortations, the private life, what happens in secret, and then we see all the way on the other spectrum, we have the outward life that touches and interacts with people. And so it begins with prayer. It's the private life. So how does your faith affect your desires and your time with God? This is the private life. And, and I would ask you, what truly matters to you? I think what you do in private truly tells you what's important in your life. And Paul says, if you believe all this stuff, if you're transformed inwardly, then prayer is going to be an outflow from the gratitude that you have for the Lord. These three adverbs, steadfastly. This means pray without stopping. This means doesn't give up, don't give up. This doesn't mean, well, check your prayer list and fire off each item and then just leave it. It's not like setting autopilot. Paul says, pray steadfastly, continue on in prayer. It's an ongoing dependence on God and communion with him. It's saying, God, I don't know where this is going to end up. I don't know how this is going to resolve, but I'm still asking. I'm still looking. I'm still pleading because even that transforms the heart. It guides the Christian. Number two is with watchfulness watchfulness. This means paying attention, not hazy, not indifferent. This is the person who is, who is looking around, who is aware and attentive in their prayers. This is a person who, as they are praying, is looking about them, observing people, observing circumstances. But our prayers need to be characterized by watchfulness. I mean, we close our eyes when we pray, so maybe you think, what's this all about? But there's a, there's a spiritual watchfulness. When you're calling out to the creator of the universe who has all power, there is some expectation there, isn't there? Or should there be? There should be some expectation that God is somehow going to be seen in these prayers. Now, often prayers are not answered the way we think they should be, uh, but I'm pretty thankful for that because God answers the way he uh, wants to see it happen. Number three, our third characteristic is thankfulness. This is really simple. You know, the one who has received much from God will ask much from God. And so this is why the prayer, the, the command to pray comes at the end of the book, because we look at the treasures we've received in Christ, the new life that we've been given, our, our destiny that awaits us. And then Paul says, pray with thankfulness. 
That should not be hard for the Christian. Now, it can be. We can go through seasons of tragedy, seasons of difficulty, seasons of pain, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a God who is with us and who loves us and who cares for us. Thankfulness is not a pretend attitude. It's not an attitude that says, oh, I'm not paying attention to what's really going on. Um, I'm just going to put on a fake smile when things are tough. Because that's a possibility, right? Some people say like, oh, you're not allowed to be in a bad mood because you're a Christian. And, and sometimes Christians go on thinking, well, I need to uh, live in denial or I need to pretend like nothing ever goes wrong for the Christian. And that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that because you have received much from God, you understand what he's willing to do. You understand what he's willing to give. And so we give thanks to God. So this is the posture of prayer. Now, what's the purpose of the prayer? So we have a posture of watchfulness, steadfastness, and thankfulness. And then we need to look at the purpose of the prayer. What are we praying for? Well, Paul doesn't, he assumes that you are praying steadfastly on your own for whatever's going on in your life. Because he says, at the same time, pray for us. So he doesn't give specifics about your own prayer life. You've all got things that you're calling out to God for. But then he says, if you would like some more direction for your prayer, I'm going to give it to you right now. He says, pray at the same time, as you're also already praying steadfastly, pray also for us at the same time. Pray for us that a God may open to us a door of opportunity for the word. And so we have, we have three uh, purposes of this prayer as well. Number one is opportunity. Number two is willingness. And number three is clarity. This is, this is the prayer of the effective church, of the members of the effective church. Uh, we, we don't spend every Sunday morning in an hour-long prayer, do we? Paul assumes and God assumes that you as individual members of the church are praying continually in your own lives to see these things happen. Number one is opportunity. Paul says, pray for us that I might have an opportunity, an open door for the word. So the particular focus of this prayer is advance of the gospel. Now, remember that Paul recognized and and highlighted in chapter one that it was the word that birthed the church. It was the word that transformed pagans into Christians. And so Paul says near the end of this letter, can you pray for us that this word would have new opportunity, new moments, new interactions with people, new expansions so that God's church would continue to grow. So number one, we're praying for the opportunity for the word. This is a healthy thing for the church, isn't it? I mean, I don't know, I don't know what your church experience has been like or what, what your personal prayer life has been like, but when you have a goal in your prayer, when you are seeking uh, the expansion of God's glory and for the spread of his word, it gets you excited. I mean, you can't help but see like, Lord, where is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? How are you going to use me? If we're never praying for a door of opportunity to be opened, it's stagnant. We, we have no forward motion. We have no um, push toward the next glory that Paul speaks of in another book, being transformed from glory to glory and seeing new believers and seeing new baptisms. So we need to recognize prayer as important in the role of the spreading of the gospel and the growth of the church. And so as as Christians in our prayer time, we need to ask, what's truly important? What What truly really matters in all of eternity? It's that God's word would go out. 
And so number one, we need to pray for opportunities. Now, Paul, as an apostle, he's a traveling missionary. Now, the application here is that he's a visiting pastor, maybe, or he's given this letter to them, but he's like, I'm traveling on and on and on and on, and I'm just going around, and I'm planting as many churches as I can before I die. And so Paul is saying, you as a church, you have already tasted what it's like to have the word come to you, and you've believed in it. And he says, that word that you believed in, it's bearing fruit in other places too. So if you understand what it's like to receive the word of God, I ask that you would pray the same for those who don't yet know. It's a merciful thing. It's to call out for the lost and say, Lord, even as I have received life, Lord, I pray that your word would reach others who do not yet know. This prayer has a definite purpose to see others converted. And he says this opportunity, this open door. Paul is saying, he's not saying like, I'm hoping as I'm going along, somebody says this way, Paul, why don't you come preach in this open sphere? That picture that he shows us is actually, he's saying the preaching of the word is as difficult as it is to bash through a door that has been dead bolted and locked. He's not saying, I hope somebody invites me to an apologetics conference and that'll be a great uh, opportunity for me to preach the gospel. He's looking around at a world that is closed off to the gospel, has uh, wants nothing to do with God. And he's saying, I pray one of those doors gets smashed so that God's word can go forth and perform miracles in their lives. My friends, do you think that the world is open and looking for us to preach to them? Do you think I'm about to get invited to a town council meeting to preach the gospel? No, I'm not. But I pray that we as a church are looking for doors of opportunity to be smashed open. We need to ask for those. I remember when I was um, in trade school and I was all with all these guys who did not know the Lord and did not want to know the Lord. And I remember at lunch, I went into the bathroom and I was in there washing my hands and I, was, I said, Lord, I pray you give me an opportunity to speak to these guys. And I kid you not, I walked back to the table and I I can't even share with you what they were talking about before I went to the bathroom. But when I got back, one of the guys was like, oh yeah, God, like he's real. I was like, is this the opportunity? When you ask, God will invite you into opportunities. I sat there thinking, how am I ever going to talk to these guys about the Lord? I mean, I'm not a great evangelist, but I want to be faithful to share uh, what God has done for me. And so, I mean, that's amazing. Friends, pray for opportunity for yourselves, uh, but just be, get ready because they will come. They will come. And, And this is what an effective church prays for. Number one is opportunity. Number two is willingness. Wow. Paul says, um, that I may declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. We need to pray for a willingness. How many of you, if you were already imprisoned because of the preaching the gospel, you thought, I did my job. Here I am in chains. You know, like obviously I was willing to preach. Paul's like, I need to still preach. And I wonder how many of us wonder, you know, I'll be an effective Christian when God removes uh, this obstacle from my life. When God removes this challenge from my life, then I'll become an effective Christian. Then I'll belong to a church. Then I'll give myself to a local church. Paul says, I'm already in chains because of this gospel, but can you pray for me that I'll have more opportunity? I mean, nothing stops Paul. Now, he even confesses. He's like, now I recognize that I'm not married. I don't have other responsibilities. There's a lot of other guys. 
He was fully given to this. And I write, you all have, you know, most of you have families or you have things that God has called you to. And I'm not saying you need to be like Paul. I'm saying Paul looked at his circumstances and said, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I ask that God would use me. I ask that you would pray that God will keep using me. I mean, it's like I'm already in chains. I think what he's saying is I have nothing left to lose. So I pray that more people can come and hear the word. I don't have much more to lose. And, and we know that what little he had left to lose, he did lose. He was killed on account of his preaching. And you know what? It didn't stop the church. So the effective church prays with a posture of steadfastness, watchfulness, and thanksgiving. It prays for the purpose of opportunity, willingness, and clarity. Clarity. Let's not miss that. That Paul says that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. There's a lot of messaging going around about Jesus. There's a lot of messaging that's going on, but it's not clear messaging. Have you ever noticed how different people can account for the life of Christ? It's a little bit mind-blowing how people detach Jesus from the words that we've been given and say, well, this is what he was like. This is what he did. This is what he was about. And it can be a little bit exasperating because you're thinking, how do, what is, do I have it right? Am I a real Christian? And it, it can be confusing. And Paul says, I don't want to be anywhere near that. I want to declare the gospel with clarity, which is how I ought to speak. Let us have clarity. And so I pray as a church, we are praying that not only in my preaching or whoever else comes and brings God's word, that it is clear, that it is transparent, that you can understand it, that you can apply it, uh, that we don't stray from the clear words of scripture, that we don't have people up here pontificating and and theorizing and, and strategizing apart from the clarity of the word. And so if I'm ever not here and somebody is up here uh, denying the clarity of the word or doing anything but that, and I pray they never get into a pulpit in here, uh, but run them out because the Bible is clear and we ought not to speak in any way other than perfect clarity. We've been given that as a mission. So we're going to continue to do that and, and, and we're going to continue for open doors to be uh, busted down. And I, I, had, I mean, I have to ask this again. Does kingdom growth seem unlikely or impossible in our cultural situation? Yes, hint, yes. It seems impossible, doesn't it? I mean, man, aren't people turning away from the church in droves? Aren't churches emptying out? And we're going to talk about that a little bit in our town hall meeting. But man, with God at the helm, with God steering the ship, with God building his church in Jesus Christ, uh, it is anything but impossible. And it's proof when the church grows that only God could have done it. So if the effective church prays, and I'm going to close with this second exhortation, the effective church lives wisely. This is the public, um, this is the public ministry of the Christian. The private ministry of the Christian is to pray. The public ministry of the Christian is to walk in wisdom. And so as a church, are we walking wisely? Do we walk wisely? This is the conduct of the effective church. Now, again, I want to remind you that this is a specifically individual command. Paul says, uh, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech also be gracious, seasoned with salt. This is not an exhortation to the church in general. Because 
He talks about making contact with outsiders. He talks about speech, about conversation. He's talking about things that are descriptors of a relationship, of some kind of interaction. Christians um, need to live with what Paul is saying here. They need to live with an ongoing consciousness, an, an ongoing uh, reality and awareness about the mission of the church that God has given it in Christ. And, and, to, and that forces us to look at what is the perception of my life toward outsiders? If you take seriously the mission of the church to advance the knowledge of God in the world, then that also must beg the question, how do people who are not inside the church view my life? What is the perception of my life to outsiders? This means beyond our walls. You know why? Because he says, uh, let your speech toward outsiders be seasoned with salt. And so I kind of have this picture where um, we live in an open borderland. We live in a borderland. And and we're on one side in the kingdom of God, on one side of the border. And and, and we are so close to like the Canada-US border all along the prairies or something. We are so close to those on the other side of that border. They're called outsiders. And Paul says, we are so close to them and they can see what you're doing. You can have conversations with them. And if we are being strategic and effective, we are aware that our interactions with them must be done in such a way that we are hoping and praying that they will come to the church, that they will come to Jesus Christ in faith. And the way that we act with them, because you may notice we don't do a lot of public invitation to come and hang out with us here at Evergreen Chapel. You know why? People don't want to go to church out there. So it doesn't matter which church you invite them to. Most of the time, they don't want to. Paul says your evangelism strategy should be individual. It should be in your relationships. It should be in how you talk to people. It should be in how you rub shoulders, how you work with them. That's the evangelism strategy of the church. We're not putting on events here and saying, hey, Smith Falls, come check out how great a church we are because they don't want to go to church. You know what they want? They want a Christian who stands beside them and says, hey, can I tell you about something? Can I help you with something? Can I I guide you in something? Can I be there for you? Can I support you? Can I encourage you? That is the testimony of the church to the unbelieving world. They see your life. They see your speech. Paul says, make the best use of your time. This is not, the the first way I read this, I was corrected when I did uh, more deeper reading. It doesn't mean make sure every moment of your day is not wasted. So if you're sitting there and you're waiting for your meal to come, you better tweet out something gospel. Boom, I just made the best best use of my time. You know, that's not what that actually means. Although that's an important lesson not to waste time. That's not what Paul is saying. Because the, the context here is that he's praying for, he's asking for prayer for opportunities. Now, what Paul is saying is that uh, when those opportunities come, use them. Make the most of when those times come. There may be time in between. There may be uh, lull seasons or periods where you don't see an opportunity. But Paul is saying when they come, make the most of it. Leverage it. Use it. And you know what? This is why we need to pray with watchfulness, by the way. You need to be watchful. Is God moving an opportunity into my life right now? Sometimes you'd have to be, I mean, strictly blind to not see the opportunities, but sometimes it takes a little bit of spiritual wisdom 
Maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe there are times where if I open my mouth to this person, they are just going to freak and close off and they're never going to hear from me again. But maybe there's a time where you see some softness and some vulnerability where instead of exploiting that person, you can say, hey, I see that you're hurting. Maybe there's an opportunity God is gently ushering you into and Paul says, don't waste that. It doesn't mean smash them when the, with the gospel when you get the chance. So, oh, I did my job. You're in a relationship with these people. Your, your speech is to be seasoned with salt. What is salt? Salt does two things. It, it preserves. Okay, and so it preserves food, especially in the ancient world. And so Paul is saying your words need to have some kind of weightiness or eternal significance to them. We need to speak as those who have the mind of Christ, who know the beginning, not know the beginning from the end, but we see uh, the, the, in the economy of God what is going on. And, and we can add eternal significance to somebody's mind by speaking to them. Salt also flavors. It flavors food. Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt so that you would know how to answer each person. That little phrase, each person, means, and I read this in a book, do not speak with insipid generalities. Insipid means flavorless. You need to know the people around you. You need to know, you need to know how you ought to speak to any given individual. Every person is walking a different faith walk. They're in different places. And when I say faith walk, I mean unbelievers are walking different areas of struggle and assumption and baggage. And you need to know that person when you speak to them. I mean, so often we want to horseshoe some kind of 10-point gospel presentation into every conversation. That's what Paul might consider an insipid generality. Uh, be winsome, be wise. And that's why prayer is so important. Are you fearful about speaking to people with this kind of, of eternity at stake, with seasoned salt and graciousness? I am too. That's why prayer is so important that God prepares you and, and that your mind is full of his truth so that you can speak clearly and faithfully to people. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says, um, good words are like nails that are firmly fixed. If you're a carpenter or if you know what that's about, it means you don't need to add a thousand nails to a board to make sure that it stays up there. In fact, very often you damage the wood and you weaken the structure if you put too many nails in. Isn't that a word to some of us in how we speak, myself included? Less is sometimes so much more when they are seasoned with salt. Our words need to be carefully chosen and seasoned and spoken um, kindly and, and with wisdom to uh, any given person. And so Paul says, begin with prayer. Let your private life be enriched and filled up by God's thoughts, but then also prepare for the answer to those prayers. If you're praying for opportunity, get ready for them. He says, make the most of your time and walk wisely uh, because they will come. So this, these are instructions for the effective church. Do you want to belong to an effective church? You need to be a part of it by doing this. Some people say, well, I, I, hope, I hope they have a good pastor. I hope they have a good leadership team. The church is made out of living stones. We are all part of the church. I'm, nothing, I'm covered in orange juice this morning. There is nothing special about me. Okay? I'm serious. You all have gifts. This is how you can own your participation in the church. Take your private life and enrich it with prayer and then be ready in your public life um, to use opportunity and to seize them um, for the glory of God, for the growth of his kingdom.